0: Good morning, Journey. It's so great to be with you, as always. Uh, if you've been kind of following with us, we're in uh, week number six of a message run that we're calling Jesus for President. And we're talking a little bit about Jesus' Department of Labor today. And you don't have to be an astute political mind to see that an important issue in our country is the issue of jobs I mean, probably a thousand times in the last week, if you've had your television on at all, you've heard people say, "If they're good for jobs, they're good for Montana." Have you heard that? Ten, maybe ten thousand times in the last. Because jobs matter, and we've got an issue with jobs in our country. And the problem is this: there are lots of people that want to work, but there aren't enough jobs for them. That's the problem that our country is facing. But I want us to flip that upside down a little bit, and I want us to look at what Jesus says about the kingdom of God and a reality that is taking place there, because the exact opposite is true. There are lots of things that need to be done, but there are not enough workers. This is what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I want us to think a little bit about this text of scripture this morning. When Jesus looked at the crowds in this text of scripture, what is it that he saw? What did he see that nobody else saw Because when we look at this, the text gives us no reason to believe that this is nothing more than just an average scene that you would see in first century Israel, that there would probably be people bustling around, going to and from work, buying, selling, trading. There would be groups of women together, talking and laughing, groups of men together, visiting, quarterback, or Sunday morning quarterbacking the Bobcat football game, something like that. There would be kids playing, teenagers flirting. Just the normal scene in first century Israel. But Jesus saw something more than that. Because he just didn't see what was going on on the outside of people's lives. He was able to look into the deep places of their life, to the place of their soul. And this is what he saw. He saw these people are separated from me. These people are separated from the God who loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. Regardless of what was going on on the outside, he saw the inner reality. And this is what it said happened inside of him. He was moved with compassion for these people because they were harassed and helpless. Like a sheep without a shepherd. It moved him. It wrecked his heart that there was a reality that he was separated from them he was moved with compassion there was one time years ago that i was talking about this very text and i used the word compassion and jesus's compassion for lost people and an older pastor came up to me afterwards and he said i want to share with you young man a definition of, of compassion that has always stuck with me he said compassion is their pain in your heart that's what it means to have compassion. The pain of people that are separated from God would actually reside in our heart. And that's what Jesus was experiencing that day. So if this is the reality that was moving the heart of Jesus, that these people were separated from him, wouldn't you think that his response would be immediately to move toward those people and proclaim to them the message of salvation? The message that it's only through a relationship with him that they're going to be restored a relationship with the father it's very interesting that jesus doesn't move toward them but what he actually does is he turns his attention to his disciples and he said this is where the problem is going to be solved it's going to be solved with you ultimately it is the issue of salvation found in christ but you are going to be the workers in that you are going to be the solution to that that is jesus's department of labor And then he commands them, not only, he commands them to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Be those laborers, be those people that are going to take the message to the lost sheep. But not only ask that Jesus would send people, the implication obviously would be to be one of those people. Don't just assume that you're going to pray and ask somebody else to do it, but that we would actually link arms with Jesus and what he is doing in the world to help bring people back into a relationship with him. Be a laborer. That is Jesus' department of labor. And we see the same command, a similar command given to Jesus, given by Jesus at the very end of his earthly ministry. Oftentimes we refer to this piece of scripture as the great commission. And we think about it as being great in the sense that these were Jesus's some of his last words to his disciples. And everything, obviously, that Jesus said that is recorded in Scripture is absolutely important. But I think it would be wise of us maybe to even give a little more weight to his final words. What is the last thing that I want to make sure that you get? This is what Jesus said when he handed the disciples the baton and gave them their marching orders. In Matthew 28, verses 18, it says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And if we look at the very centerpiece of this command that Jesus gives us, the centerpiece is that we would be people that make disciples. That we would be people that make disciples who can make disciples. I was hanging out with a couple of friends the other night. We were having a conversation just like this. And the gal looked across the table and just said, but what is a disciple? How do you define a disciple? And I think that is an amazing question and an important question. And that's the question that we're going to look at today. What does the Bible say is true of someone that is truly a follower of Jesus Christ? And the first thing that is absolutely true of someone that is a true follower of Jesus Christ is that they walk by faith. they someone who walks by faith. And now I know if, if we look at the whole counsel of God's word, there's so much that is said about what it looks like and what it means to walk by faith. We could continue preaching for days and days and days and never exhaust what it looks like to walk by faith by faith but I want to try to boil it down to at least one thing there's lots of things that it is but friends it is at least this it is someone who hears from God and responds in obedience someone who walks by faith is someone that simply hears the voice of God in their life and they respond with him to him by faith which is trust and obedience this is what it means to walk by faith And in the scriptures, Jesus uses a great imagery to talk about what it looks like to walk by faith. And he has this imagery of a sheep and a shepherd. I've got some, the the text that he uses is in John chapter 10. And I won't read all of that to you. But the essential imagery that he gives there is this idea that if we are to be his disciple, we are like sheep following a shepherd. And there's something that is absolutely true of these sheep. They are able to hear the voice of God. They can distinguish his voice from the other voices of the world. And they hear his voice and they follow him. They follow him in obedience. And so you see there's two different kinds of sheep that Jesus sees in the world. There's only two kinds of sheep. There's the first kind that we looked at. Those kind that are separated from him. They don't know him. They don't know his voice. They're harassed and helpless because they don't have a shepherd. But on the other side of the fence are those that truly have come to know him and have followed him and are his disciples. And what is true of these people is that they actually do hear the voice of God. Again, that they can separate from all the other voices that they're hearing in the world. And when they hear that voice, that's the voice that they follow. They hear and respond to the voice of God. And now I realize that I can just say that term, hearing the voice of God, and a lot of bells can go off in your mind Like, is this gonna get weird now talking about hearing the voice of God? But God has made it very simple and very clear for us. He primarily wants us to hear his voice in his word. This is his voice to us. He wants us to hear and respond to what he says in the word. And this is what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all scripture the, all of the counsel of God is God-breathed, meaning it is the exhaling of God. This is God's voice to us. And it's useful to us. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. With the purpose that, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to be a part of Jesus' department of labor, we need to be equipped for every good work that he is entrusted to us. And we do that by hearing and responding to his voice in the word. And it says that the word is helpful for us in teaching. It tells us what's right. It tells us what corresponds to reality as God defines reality. It it tells us that it's helpful for rebuking. It tells us what's not right. It puts boundaries around our life to keep us protected from things that would be harmful to us. It tells us what's right, it tells us what's not right, but it's also helpful in correcting. It tells us how to get right. Because just to take the sheep analogy, another step forward, sheep tend to wander. And if we put ourselves in that place, do we not also feel like there's times in life that we miss the voice of God, we wander off from his voice. But it's his word, it's his voice in the word that brings us back in line to what is right, as God defines right. And it's helpful in training. It helps us learn how to stay right. How do we train ourselves to develop the life and the character that keeps Christ at the center of our life and keeps us moving toward him that we would continue to day by day listen and respond to his voice and walk by faith. I love how the Apostle Paul talks about this walk of faith in Galatians 5.25. This is what he says. He says, Since we live by the Spirit let us keep in step with the Spirit. What he's saying is, since we live by the Spirit, if you have come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is true is that God sends his Spirit to dwell within us. And it's that Spirit in us that speaks to our heart, that tells us what is the voice of God. And that Spirit that lives within us as we read his holy text, the Bible tells us that the Spirit illumines the word to us, illumines it to our mind and helps us to understand and respond to God's word. And so it says, since we live by the spirit, it says, what do we do? Let us keep in step with the spirit. And the imagery that always comes to my mind from the very first time I read this text of scripture, I thought about what it was like as a young boy to go on walks with my dad. And I don't know why this was, but I thought it was just me, but I always wanted to be in the same pace as my dad. So I'd always just try to get my And just work like that. So I would just be right in step with him. And you're little and you've got to take big steps. And I know you did that too, didn't you? Because I see kids doing it all the time. We want to walk like our dads walk. And I think that's the picture that Paul wants us to grab a hold of here. To walk by faith means that we listen to what God is doing in our life. We see what God is saying and we match our step to what it is that he's saying in our life. We walk by faith. With him, we match our steps to him. And if I could just go to the place of exhorting a little bit this morning, I would love to challenge you to think about this as you approach the word of God. That you wouldn't just think, I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit today. Kind of that mindset, you know, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. But that you would actually approach the word of God. That this is a conversation with a very living and real God and a very personal God, and he wants to talk to you as you open up the word. I think that can change our mindset. It's not just about reading a few paragraphs to get some tips for the day, but it's about engaging with a living God and that we would come before the word of God with an open heart and a bent knee that just says, God, I'm expecting you to say something to me today. And whatever you say to me, God, I'm gonna do my best in the next 24 hours to apply that. I am going to follow you. I am going to obey you as best I can, whatever it is that you're speaking to me. And that's what a disciple looks like, someone that approaches God humbly and openly and surrendered to him, hears and responds to the word of God. A disciple walks by faith. But a disciple doesn't just simply walk by faith. A disciple is someone that communicates their faith. A disciple is someone that displays the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ with their life and how they live. So that they live the kind of life that requires a gospel response. Why is it that they live the way they do? But it's not just about displaying the gospel. It is also about declaring the gospel. That we would be people that know how to communicate the story of God to people in a way that they understand who God is and what he's done for them, and how their smaller story fits into the bigger story of God. We display the gospel, but we also declare the gospel. That's what a disciple does. And it's interesting to me when you look at the life of Jesus, and you think about the people in his life that pushed back on him, the people that questioned him and discredited him, his contemporaries that were always in his face, what was the issue that they had with Jesus? The issue that they had with Jesus was, Who it was that he hung out with. It's like he's making these claims to be the Messiah, but look who he hangs out with. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus did that absolutely unashamedly. He never backed away from that. In fact, he went so far as to say, you don't understand. That is the reason that the Messiah came. And he said this absolutely clearly in Luke nineteen ten, when he was describing the purpose of the Messiah coming. He says, for the Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save what was lost. If there was ever a purpose statement for Jesus, it was there, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is Jesus' family business. And if we want to be a part of Jesus' family business as his sons and daughters, we need to get about the things that he's about. And from the very beginning, as he began to call people to follow him, he made it clear that if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to walk in my footsteps, if you're going to match my life, your life, to my steps, it's going to mean we're going after people that are lost. In Luke 19.10, at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, those that he were challenging to follow him, he said, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. This is the kingdom program, friends, is what he's saying to them. I know that you're not this right now, guys. You are not fishers of men. But if you're going to follow me at the end of the day, that's where we're going. And that's what you're going to be. And that's what he gave his life to, pouring into these men and helping them to become fishers of men. And just in case they might have forgotten the most important message he gave them, he said it again to them right before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The last things he said to them is, this is your marching orders. Again, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to tell of what you've seen and heard in your own lives, and you're going to take that message to the ends of the earth. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we've got to care about the things that he cares about. We need to love the things that he loves. We need to move toward the people that Jesus cares most about. We need to love what he loves. And I realize whenever you talk about this idea of reaching out to people, taking our faith to people that don't know Christ, that it can just put people automatically on edge and I know people are right now you're just thinking Bob I get it I think you're making a case that Jesus cares about it but that is just not my thing that just freaks me out when I think about what it would be like to talk with people about my faith in Christ but here's one thing that I believe is absolutely true about probably every person in this room you are naturally evangelistic And you're thinking, no, not me. But here, get my point. You are naturally evangelistic in this way, that if something exciting happens to you, something fun happens to you, you want other people to know about it. You want to tell other people about it. And here's my proof that I believe that this is true for people on this planet. Two words, Gangnam Style. Okay, now, now I heard a little, few chuckles out there. How many people actually know what I'm talking about when I say Gangnam Style? Right? It is this YouTube video of an Asian guy dancing that has just gone completely viral in the last few months. Hundreds of millions of hits on the YouTube site about this silly little video. And I mean, people have posted it, they've tweeted it, they've shared it, they've linked it. For crying out loud, they're talking about it in their sermons, if you can believe that. And Gangnam Style, let's be honest, for those of you that even know, and, and if you don't know what it's about, you're not missing anything, I, I tr- trust me. But if you do know what it's about, it's just silly, it's meaningless. I feel like I could go on record and say that the video Gangnam Style is not going to change anybody's Forever. But yet, we all want to talk about it. We all want to tell other people about it. And some of you are going to go Google it as soon as you leave here just to see what in the world are they talking about. Because when there's things that are exciting to us, we want to tell others. And what I believe is true of most people in this room is that apathy is not our problem when it comes to reaching out to people that don't know Christ. I'm just going to believe that because you know, if you know Christ... That there's been a transformation that has taken place in your life as you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. And God is beginning to change you from the inside out. There is something that is so real in there that there is a desire to want to tell people about that. I'm going to believe that that's true. But this is what I think the issue can be sometimes. We have a want to, but we don't have a how to. I have compassion. I want to be God's voice into people's life, but I just don't know what to do. I want to give you a couple of applications that you could maybe think about. And what I'm thinking about is not that you would just try to do something grand, some kind of a grand outreach in life, but that you would begin to bring what I call gospel intentionality to everything that you do in normal day life. Not that we're going to try to plan elaborate outreaches, but how can I just use the everyday things that I do in life, the normal rhythms of my life, and bring gospel intentionality to those? And here's one thing that I want you to think about. In the next week, give or take, you're probably going to eat somewhere around 21 meals. Here's what I want you to think about. How many of those meals will you sit across the table from someone that doesn't know Christ? And if the answer is probably zero, ramp that up. Make that one person. In the next week, just think of one person or maybe one family in your neighborhood. Just think one meal. I'm going to invite people that don't know Christ to sit across the table from me. And I'm not saying that you even have to have any kind of agenda. I don't think there has to be even a gospel conversation agenda necessarily. But if you find yourself in a place where you're isolated from people that don't know Christ, you don't have relationships with them, your first step of intentionality is begin to build those bridges sit across the table from people and just ask them questions, hear their story, find out what's going on in their life. Because what I know is true is that when we begin to know people, we begin to know the things that are going on underneath the surface in their life. It breeds comp- compassion in us. It brings breeds compassion for them. Increase that level of intentionality. Think about coworkers, that you know maybe neighbors maybe classmates and think about one meal next week could i sit across the table from someone that doesn't know christ and get to know them better and secondly maybe you're in a place maybe a second place of application is that you're thinking you know i know people that don't know christ i have a relationship with them but i really don't know how to bring up the god thing i really don't know how to bring that in to a conversation And I want to give you a suggestion, and that if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, because maybe not everything that I've said today is gold, but I think this is going to be gold for you. This is going to be helpful. The normal thing that happens in our life, probably, is that most of us are going to go back to our normal sphere of influence, whether it's work or school or our neighborhood. Monday morning's coming, and it's going to be very normal, we're going to be around this groups of people, and some of them that we know don't have a relationship with God. And it's a very normal thing on Monday morning for friends of ours to talk about what we did on the weekend. So here's what I want you to do. You can remember this. Just think about a friend and just say, I want to ask them about their weekend. Just ask them what they did this weekend and just hear a report from them. And if your friend is normal, socially normal, and not completely self centered, at some point they're going to ask you, Well, what did you do this weekend? And you can talk about your weekend, but here's one thing that I I think you can say. You can say, you know, I went to church and I heard the most amazing sermon. You don't have to say that you heard an amazing sermon, but this is what I would want you to say. You know, this weekend I went to church and I heard some things that I think are really going to help me in my relationship with God. And then look at them and say, do you have any kind of a spiritual background? And just see what they say. And just see where the conversation goes. You would be amazed where those kinds of conversations can go. If we simply just say, do you have any kind of a spiritual background? Just give God a chance to break into a conversation and to break into a relationship with someone. It was interesting, just a couple of days ago, I was sitting at Costco eating my low-fat Polish dog with a pop. I heard someone, yeah. Those are great. And I was sitting there, you know how it, it can, I was sitting there by myself, and you know how it can, there's not a lot of tables there, it can get crowded. Well, this guy comes up and just says, can I sit with you? And I just said, absolutely, you can sit with me. So we started having a conversation, and as oftentimes conversations between guys go, um, I was asking him what he did for a living, and how he ended up in Bozeman, we were talking about that, and relationships, and family, and those kind of things. And ultimately, he asked me, he just said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, just recently I became a pastor at a church here in town. And then I just said, do you have any kind of a spiritual background? And it was amazing where the conversation went. He just began to unpack a lot of things that were going on in his life and all the different things that he's tried along the way and where he is now and ended in an opportunity for me to invite him to come here. You just never know what God is gonna do in a conversation when we give him an opportunity. Just remember that question. Do you have any kind of a spiritual background? And it was interesting to me because there was a a good friend of mine that was just sitting a a couple tables over and he was there with his wife and I had no idea that he was hearing our conversation. But the next day, he ran into me and he said, dude, did you know that guy? And I said, no. And he said, did he just come and sit with you? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, how did you guys get talking about that? And I just said, you know, I just asked him this question. And he just nodded and he said, you know, that was cool. That was really cool. But I think there are opportunities out there like that for us to engage with people in very normal gospel conversations without getting weird, just by simply asking a question. So what I want us to do as a, as a church is that we would just, wherever we're at in the whole reaching out to people thing, That we would just turn the dial of intentionality up just a little bit. We start to think about what are ways that I can add gospel intentionality to the everyday things that I'm doing in life. And how can I begin to initiate conversations that bring the issue of Christ to the forefront. Because if we want to be a disciple of Christ, we've got to do the things that he did. And his life was about taking the message to people that were lost. Disciples communicate their faith. But not only do disciples communicate their faith, disciples multiply their faith. There's more to following the command of Christ than simply reaching out to people. The ultimate command in the Great Commission, remember, the imperative, the command piece was make disciples. It's not just about making converts, it's about making disciples. We need to be people that are in the process of, of helping others walk by faith and learn to communicate their faith and learn to multiply their faith. I want us to unpack a text of scripture that shows kind of the, a picture of spiritual multiplication and what it means to multiply our faith. And that's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. And I wanna to try to illustrate, if I can, we've got at least four generations of discipleship taking place in this one verse alone. And if I can, I'm gonna use a little bit of audience participation to help me out with this. Shannon, could I bug you yeah. to help me? You won't have to say anything, I promise. But Shannon is gonna be Paul for us in this illustrate. Could you stand up and be Paul? Could you be Timothy for me? Okay, so as we're looking at this verse right here, this is a verse written by Paul to Timothy. And this is what he says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Now when we think about what we know about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, there's much that's said in Scripture. If we just look just a few chapters back at the very beginning of 2 Timothy, what we see is that there is a deep relationship there. Paul refers to Timothy as his dear son in the faith. There's a closeness there. And if we go back to the book of Acts, and at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, we see how this relationship between Paul and Timothy began. Paul was at the beginning of his second missionary journey, and he runs across Timothy, and he sees something in Timothy. There was something about him. And he says, that's a guy that I want to invest in. I want to invest my life in him. And we see that's exactly what Paul did, because he invited Timothy along with this missionary band, throughout Asia Minor. This is what they did. Paul poured his life into Timothy. And toward the end of Paul's life, the, the place where Paul did most of his ministry, the place where he stayed the longest, was in Ephesus. And when Paul left Ephesus, what he did was he left Timothy in charge of the church there. This was a church that was Paul's crown jewel. He loved this church but he left Timothy in charge of that church and so this letter that we're reading here 2nd Timothy is Paul writing back later in his life to Timothy in Ephesus but this is what he's telling Timothy to do he says Timothy you remember all the things that I did how I poured my life into you and there were lots of people around that saw you do Timothy this is what I want you to do I want you to entrust those things that I've entrusted to you I want you to entrust those to reliable men And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn around and look about three rows back, and in that third row back, I want you to pick three people to stand up that look like reliable people. We'll just call them people because they might not all be men. And don't get your feelings hurt if you don't get picked. You've been chosen. Oh, yeah, you can just stand right there. That's great. But this is what... Paul tells Timothy to do, he says, pour your life into these kind of reliable men. Look for people that are faithful, reliable, people that want to walk by faith, that want to communicate their faith, and ultimately that they would want to multiply their faith. And he said, there's a way that I want you to invest in them. I want you to invest in them in a way that they would be able to invest in others, because that's what the text says. It says, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified To teach others. Now, I want each of you to turn around and pick three people that you think look like reliable men or women. Do you see the picture that is being painted in this text of Scripture? It's this idea that Paul is saying, everything that I entrust to you, entrust to others who will be able to entrust to others. And the implication being, others, others. We could go on forever. This is what God intends for his kingdom to be advanced as we make disciples of one another. But let's also think about the influence that Timothy had in his life. Was it just Paul? Was Paul the only person that influenced Timothy? Not at all. There were other leaders on that missionary band as well. We know for sure that one of them was Silas right here. Silas, would you stand up? You were a mentor in the life of Timothy. And at the very beginning of the book of 2 Timothy, we see that Timothy's mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, were influencers in his life. Can you be Lois and Eunice all at one time? Awesome. There were a team of mentors around Timothy. There were a multitude of people that were pouring in to his life. But Timothy also, he wasn't alone in the things that he was doing, especially when we look at 2 Timothy. We look at the idea that Timothy had a group of people around him that were on mission with him, building the church in Ephesus. He had comrades, other elders in the church. And so could you, a couple of you just stand up? Could you guys stand up? Perfect. We could all stand up. (laughs) But the idea is that Timothy wasn't in this alone. He had people that were linked arms with him in the mission. And see, this picture, this network of relationships, this network of discipleship, this is what God wants for every one of his children. That we would have mentors in our life that are pouring into us. That we would have people alongside us that are helping us walk with God and engaged in the mission with us. And there would be other people, maybe maybe a little younger in the faith than us, that we've got our arm around. And we're helping them learn how to walk by faith, communicate their faith, and multiply their faith. This is the picture of discipleship that the Bible paints for us. Now you guys can all sit down except for Timothy. You have to stand up. This is what I think might be the reality for a lot of people. We don't have that beautiful picture of a network of discipleship or relationships around us. We can feel like Timothy feels standing right there alone. I don't have those people in my life. And this is where my challenge to you is we've got to begin to think about how do we start to develop that network of relationships around us. And that network is not built overnight. It's built one intentional relationship at a time. Maybe Timothy needs to think of who are people around me that are maybe a little further down the road in their faith that could mentor me that could help me think about how to walk by faith, how to communicate my faith, how to multiply my faith. Maybe I need comrades. Maybe I need just buddies in this as well, people that'll link arms with me, thinking about how do we walk with God together. And maybe we would just get together and study the scriptures together and ask those questions. God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do about it? Maybe we need to just find a comrade there. Or maybe you're at a place where you need to think of, you know, maybe there's a younger person that I could begin to pour my life into, And get my arm around them. Wherever we're at in that process, we've got to turn the dial of intentionality. And think about how do we start to develop that network of relationships around us. Thank you, Timothy. And what we just saw there, that idea of biblical discipleship, is what Jesus modeled in his life as well. His heart, we always know from everything that he said, his heart was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth that everyone would hear, how to have a relationship and be restored to the Father. But when we watch what he did, we see someone that focused on a few. It wasn't about the breadth of his ministry. There were times that he taught to the multitudes, but the majority of his ministry was spent with a few because he knew if I build into them the hunger to walk by faith, communicate their faith and multiply their faith. When I leave, there will be fires lit in the hearts and lives of people that will never go out. That's what Jesus knew and that's exactly what happened. When we look at the lives of these men, how they lived their lives and even how they gave their lives at the end, Jesus built into them in a way that they multiplied their faith. He was able to make disciples who could make disciples who could make disciples. Back in the early 80s, there was a football player at Montana State, and his name was Dwayne. And Dwayne was a guy that wanted to walk by faith. He wanted to make an influence in the lives of people. And so he did something that, in my estimation, was incredibly bold. He said, I want every guy on my football team to hear about who Christ is and what Christ has done for him. So he approached the coach And he just said, could we have a mandatory team meeting? I want to bring in a friend of mine that works with a campus ministry here at MSU, and I want him to talk to my teammates about Christ. And his coach said yes. And this event happened. The gospel was shared, and many people came to faith in Christ. But Dwayne knew something. He knew It wasn't just about building converts or making converts. It was about building disciples, about multiplying his faith, So one of those football players that came to faith was a guy named Rob. And so Dwayne got his arm around Rob, and he began to build into Rob's life and teach him how to walk by faith and communicate his faith and to multiply his faith. And so Rob started to invest in lives of people around him, and there was a guy on his dorm floor named Ron. And Ron was living very, very far from God, uh, kind of a crazy little math major up at MSU. But Rob, uh, just a mountain of a man, a uh, big black guy from Southern California, defensive lineman, and this little guy named Ron. But he shared the gospel with Ron, and Ron came to know Christ. But Rob knew that it wasn't just about building converts, it was about making disciples. So he got his arm around Ron, and he began to teach him how to walk by faith, communicate his faith, and multiply his faith. And so Ron decided what he was going to do was he was going to move back into the dorms and try to reach out to people that didn't know Christ. And he came across a guy named Tide. And Tide was a guy that was religiously interested. He had some religious background, but he didn't know Christ. And he was seeking. And when Ron showed up at his door and explained to him the gospel, Tide jumped at the chance to have a relationship with God. But what Ron knew is that it wasn't just about making converts. It was about making disciples. And so he got his arm around Tide, and he began to teach him how to walk by faith how to communicate his faith, and how to multiply his faith. And so Tide began to think of, who are the people in my sphere of influence that I could begin to have gospel conversations with? And there was a guy that lived in his apartment complex that he began to initiate with. And this guy had a religious background as well, but was living far from God. But Tide began to initiate with him and shared the gospel with him, and God broke through that guy's hardened heart, and he ultimately bowed his knee to Christ. And became a follower of Christ. But Tide knew, as you know, he knew that it wasn't just about making converts. It's about making disciples. So he got his arm around this guy. And he taught him how to walk by faith. How to communicate his faith. And how to multiply his faith. And I am so thankful for Tide. Because the guy that he got his arm around was me. I am so thankful to him. But you know who else I'm incredibly thankful for? I'm thankful for Dwayne. And to be honest, Dwayne could be sitting in this room right now, and I wouldn't know it. I have no idea who Dwayne is. I know who he is, but I don't know what he looks like. I've never had a conversation with Dwayne. But if he was sitting here, and I hope someday I get the chance, I want to thank Dwayne. Dwayne, thanks for giving your life to making disciples. Thanks for going out of your comfort zone and beginning to share the gospel and to make disciples in a way. Because Dwayne, the ripple effect of your life, has changed my eternity forever and my family. And Dwayne, he may not even know it now, but Dwayne, I've wanted to give my life to making disciples as well. The ripple effect of a life well-lived is amazing, and that's what God wants for all of us. It's not just about us receiving. It's about us turning out toward others and making disciples of others who can make disciples of others. Because as Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to, I've shared that story many times, Lord, but it's just hard to even say it without my heart just bursting and gratitude. Lord, what you've done, Lord. I'm so thankful that you moved in people's hearts throughout generations, God, that brought the gospel to me. God, and I'm so thankful that you invite me and you invite all my friends here that know you. Lord, you invite us into that with you. God, you invite us into the greatest thing happening on planet Earth, the redemption of people that don't know you. Lord, I just pray for everyone here. Lord, that wherever we're at, God, that your spirit would spark a hunger in us to want to take whatever our next step is in following you in obedience. Lord, we want to walk by faith. We want to communicate our faith. We want to multiply our faith, Lord. But we are completely dependent upon you. None of those things happen apart from a deep work of your spirit in our lives. God, we are so grateful for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.